What happens when we dive in head and heart first? Not only in response to challenges, but in the everyday moments. What opportunities are masked by the usual flow of a Wednesday afternoon? What happens when we poke at things just a little bit, while they're settled, unassuming, and we're perfectly content with how they're going? It can be risky, even dangerous, but there's also great potential in risking just a little bit of comfort in exchange for growth. Joseph Brantefort is a multi-instrumentalist, recording and mixing engineer, composer, sound artist, and programmer based out of New York City. This episode was edited by Joseph himself, which has allowed me to approach it primarily as a listener. And I've been most struck by Joseph's balance between conviction and query. The next 30 minutes explores the intersection between improvisation and composition. Not only in performance, but through the questions I asked earlier. What happens when you shake the dust a little? When you inject a new choice into the established theme? I hope you find as many points of reflection as I have in Sound in Process, Episode 19, with Joseph Bransafort. I guess I began this fascination with it when I was about 18 years old and I went to college at University of Chicago. I wasn't actually there to study music, but I was studying philosophy. But in this music department building and in the elevator, I saw a sign for computer music. It was a graduate level course. And I don't remember exactly how, but somehow I talked my way into it as a freshman. I didn't know anything about Max MSP or computer music. And it turned out to be all about composition in Max. And uh, my mind was pretty much blown instantly. I barely made it through. Uh, and I, I think my final project was some really crappy like step sequencer it made with like toggle objects or something. It was really, I was terrible. But I just saw all these graduate students creating this amazing music out of code, you know, and, uh, and I was just hooked immediately. So I ended up transferring out of the out of U Chicago and I tried to find a place where I could study computer music as an undergraduate. And then I wound up at Berkeley in Boston. I think I was just generally as a younger dude, just kind of always seeking out stuff that I didn't know about musically. And I really got deep into music theory as a teenager, to me, the computer paradigm was something that kind of got at the same root interest, something about these structural and mathematical elements that somehow also connected to very clear aesthetic experiences for me. Like there's something very fascinating about the way that formal structure and phenomenology or whatever you want to say kind of intersect. Where I grew up, I think jazz and improv was really the only academic exposure I had had to music. There was a jazz program in my high school, which had no other music. And so I was just a fan of music and kind of, like I said, hungry for new information. 
these days I'm really less interested in jazz as a creator. A lot of my professional work as a recording engineer is working in the jazz and improv communities. And I have a lot of friendships and colleagues and clients that come from there. But my interest as a composer has veered towards computation and ways of integrating that into both improvisation and composition. And so I would say I found more of a home among the lines community and electronic artists in general than the jazz community for my own work. I think that an underutilized aspect, to me at least, of computation is its ability to work on structure and harmony and uh, musical form and these types of data-driven processes that have nothing to do with sound specifically. A lot of the work that got me interested in Max MSP and PD and the rest were those abilities to quickly compute harmonic, rhythmic, and formal elements on my behalf. So for instance, the idea that I can instruct a computer about my preferences subjectively, harmonically, or rhythmically, and allow it to create according to some rules that I set is still to this day just a completely fascinating possibility that I think a lot of times the overemphasis on sound, the fact that we can do synthesis with computers takes away from the more formal structural powers that are at play. Some of my interest in composing algorithmically for acoustic instruments is to just kind of foreground that aspect of it. And also, I'm just a huge fan of the sound of acoustic instruments. There's a complexity and a richness timbrely that I think you get from them that is quite different from using oscillators or other forms of synthesis. I got interested a lot in the idea of live notation, combining composition with improvisation and the way that algorithms can mediate between the two. And uh, I had developed this kind of system where you can network between computers using Ethernet and um, have a live scrolling score that's controlled by a central computer that I was, you know, kind of inputting information into and, and had pre-programmed a lot of pre-compositional information about harmony and different events and dynamics and stuff like that. And so you kind of create this thing that where does the composition end? Where does the improvisation start? It's very unclear, but you kind of get these wholly unique performances that are nonetheless governed by rules that you've thought about a lot. You sort of know how you're doing it as far as the program is concerned, but there's still something very mysterious about why it works on you. And that's just this subjective dimension to the whole thing that I think is still really fascinating. I do have reservations about the process of live translation from code into notation and then performance mainly because I think that there is a sort of commitment that comes from the musician when they've had a chance to hear the full composition, understand its arc, and understand even 
what's coming in the next measure. And the fact that it's being generated live and I want that responsiveness, that I don't want to generate the music too far in advance because then it kind of limits my ability to interact with it. Because of that, you run into this kind of basic limitation of the medium, which is that the less information you're feeding to the performers in advance, the more control you have as a composer, but the less they know what's about to happen. And I do find that that's been a bit of a struggle, getting performers to commit essentially to the concept without really knowing what's coming around the next bend is something that has been challenging. It starkly highlights the composer-performer relationship you know, normally the performer is in a way being controlled by the composer, but it's through this layer of abstraction through the score that somehow I feel like because that's been in place for centuries or whatever, the performers just kind of accept it. But when it's being done live and when you can change that, like I had one algorithm I was using where I could change the dynamics of performers just using a MIDI controller. So it would just, you know, I would kind of turn my fader up or down if I felt like they needed to be rebalanced. And I got some really like negative feedback from performers um, where it was very clear that, you know, I'm telling them to turn down or I'm telling them they're playing too loud. And, and there was a social dynamic that I wasn't, until you start doing it with performers, you start to realize, oh, there's this social part of the algorithm too that isn't, it's not all in, in Max. There's this whole other social dimension to it. A friend of mine, Kenneth Kirshner, who's also a composer dealing with similar kinds of questions, him and I have talked a lot about this and about new problems of performance that arise when you start thinking in this way. And I think what we've come up with is just that it comes down to working with the same people and getting them familiar and comfortable because we've done performances where we have very limited rehearsal time. And many times the performers, I think, are a little skeptical just because it's new. And and once they get the hang of it and realize that it produces results that are good, then they kind of get on board. It's a performance hurdle and something that I'm still trying to figure out and negotiate. But I do think that there's a lot of nuance that comes from the performers that I don't quite find in a VST. And also just, I think there's a drama to the live performance that comes from having the live musicians and a sort of in the moment feeling where it's not just someone, you know, the the much talked about guy checking his email on the laptop vibe. So there's a performative drama, I think, that also comes from it that's, to me, philosophically interesting as well as kind of performatively. One of Joseph's goals is to achieve improvisations which carry the boldness of pre-composed work and rehearse performances which have the spark of the present moment. This balance is perhaps best realized in his collaborations with Theo Blechman a Grammy-nominated vocalist whose voice is elastic, rich, and incredibly emotive. Between the two, there's no shortage of performative drama. In varying degrees, I've been working with Theo for, yeah, about six years. I was a huge fan of his work as a teenager. I grew up listening to records that he was a part of, and I got to work with him in 2012 and 2013 on an album called Hydra for a guitarist named Ben Monder, uh, who's out of New York, and uh, it was a pretty epic project that took three years about to make. 
Theo later stumbled on this kind of sound journal thing that I had been keeping, kind of along the lines of Marcus Fisher or Taylor Dupree had done similar things, and I was kind of inspired in talking to those guys to just kind of start documenting some more improvisatory stuff, mainly based around the Fender Roads. I started doing this daily journal on SoundCloud, more just for myself to document processes and started to explore pedals and getting a little bit into modular, dipping my toes into that. As a composer, performer, I have a lot of trepidation about putting stuff out in the world. I, I tend to over-obsess about things. The sound journal was this really freeing, liberating kind of exercise where it was just, okay, I'm going to sit down for an hour or half an hour, whatever time I have, and just put something out and expose wherever I am in the process. I'm just going to put that out and, and kind of with the disclaimer that this is just me working through these musical problems. The decision to share anything from these learning periods can be a tough one. But as Joseph's experience proves, that vulnerability can have manifold benefits. Through that, I've gotten you know, a number of collaborations and different projects that have come about and just friends that I've made who found me through this journal. So it's been this really productive thing. And the Theo relationship was one of those for sure, where he just kind of heard a bunch of tracks and had asked me to get together and perform. We only played uh, a few shows in uh, 2017. And then we were invited to play with uh, Ryuichi Sakamoto. And uh, leading up to that performance, we kind of got together a bunch to explore some ideas in the process, I invited him over to my studio to rehearse and just kept the recorders rolling the whole time, not really knowing what would happen with it. But I just recorded two days of rehearsals and then spent the next six to eight months going through everything, editing and adding a little bit. But it's basically, you know, 80% just what we did in those improvised sessions. And that will be the, the first record that's coming out on the label. So again, a little bit of luck, a little bit of just the right timing and different things kind of intersecting at the right time. But um, yeah, I've been a fan of Theo's for years. And so it's really, really gratifying to be able to present this new phase in both my own work and maybe his work, because I don't think it sounds quite like anything else he's done. been a noticeable rise in artists who create as many tools for themselves as they buy. While laptops outfitted with Macs have been accessible for years, platforms like Norns and Organelle have lowered the barrier for people to build custom applications to achieve their unique musical goals. A lot of that record was this patch that I had written last year for Monome and running on an Organelle, which runs PD. So what I really did is I took Brian Crabtree's MLR and I kind of rewrote that for PD in a way that kind of emphasized some other things that I wanted to get out of it. The input sources were, yeah, Fender Rhodes, Make Noise, Zero Coast, a couple other synthesizers of Moog, Subfatty, and various little toy synths and stuff. 
as well as contact mics and tape loops. So there was a, a bunch of sound sources, but most of it was really run through this looping paradigm that I'd been working on. And actually, it's funny because the forum was what led me to that. I posted something on the Lines forum about I wanted an asynchronous four-track looper, and I listed these things that I wanted to do. Someone or maybe several people said, you know, you should look into the organelle. It ended up being the perfect device to do what I wanted to do. So, Because asynchronous looping is really kind of at the core of this work that I've been doing solo and with Theo. That's kind of the core generating principle there. And so finding a way to do that with hardware loopers was becoming really frustrating. I've tried like every looper on the market numerous times, bought and sold them all. <laughs> and I, I have this gigantic looper collection at my apartment. And it turns out that actually the, the thing that I wanted, I just needed to build it. I hadn't really ever worked in PD until last year, but I knew Maxwell enough that I could build it in like a couple days what I wanted. That, that again is another lesson that keeps returning to me, which is just that the off-the-shelf products, they get you a lot of the way there and they teach you about the paradigms, but ultimately like being able to code your own stuff is this unbelievable resource. On the algorithmic front for acoustic ensembles, the project that's going to be coming up after this first release is this thing that I alluded to with Kenneth Kirshner. I took one of his pieces and I transcribed it actually for two cellos and piano. And it was really challenging because as an electronic composer, he didn't use a grid and he used all these methods of pitch shifting and time stretching that made things completely like these non-rational rhythmic ratios. And then I had to kind of go back and reverse engineer what it actually is. That took me several weeks to transcribe and and we actually recorded that last year so that'll be one piece on the record and then the second piece is a string quartet of mine where i took um pitch class set zero one two three which is just the chromatic cluster and i explored all the possible harmonic permutations of that um pitch class set created the piece completely in max and then i just dumped it out as midi and use that MIDI to create a, a fixed score. So it's kind of not exactly the real-time thing that I was talking about before, but it's still kind of a, an algorithmic uh, composition that's completely fixed, but created a max. Ken and I have talked a lot about creating algorithms that allow you to audition a diverse set of materials, whether it be harmonic or rhythmic or textural or timbral or whatever. And you can kind of, using a simple thumbs up, thumbs down kind of rating system, you can begin to kind of train the computer towards your own compositional preferences. That's kind of a long-term project. A lot of these large-scale things like that sometimes crumble under the weight of their own conceptual girth or whatever. But 
you know, it's those types of things are fascinating to me. Um, and I've done things lately, like I've been cataloging harmonic events by lightness and darkness or almost creating like a pH scale, kind of an objective mathematical scale for ranking brightness or darkness of harmonic structures. And there's just ways that I think we can use math and computation to explore more subjective dimension, musical dimension. So that's kind of some of the like experiments I want to undertake with some releases on the, on the label. I see it as a natural progression, kind of a circle of expanding musical concern. I started out really as a performer. That was my focus as a kid. I played drums. I played piano. As I got older, as I said, I got more interested in music theory, more interested in the structure of music composition and improvisation as well. Then later got professionally interested in engineering, recording records, which is my day job now, and mixing and mastering. And then that kind of extended into producing. Also, there's the programming element. You know, there are all these kind of elements that I feel like I've just been expanding my circle of what constitutes the musical object and the musical experience. I've been thinking now for a few years about trying to expand that even further and this idea of the label just seems to be this kind of home base or a vessel that I can incorporate all these different identities into something that feels more unified. The label is Grayfade, which welcomes artists working at the edges of diverse expression rooted in exploring and challenging compositional techniques, much like Joseph's work. The label holds a clear position against streaming, which is best understood through the statement on its site. The principle, however, is rejecting unfair treatment of artist and listener alike and a commitment to quality. Part of it is planting that flag seemed to bring about some good things for me creatively. It's just another exercise in that, just putting something in the ground and saying, this is what I think should be heard. I've actually found it so far harder than I thought it would be, but also I do feel like it's accelerated my growth very quickly because it makes you confront parts of the you know, commercial and distribution paradigm and, and all these other questions that have come up that you have to then think, well, now I'm doing this thing, so how do I want to address this? So it just feels like this kind of growth accelerator, and I've had to learn how to do design, which was something that I wanted to tackle myself and to do press and all this other stuff that you have to just kind of learn from the ground up. And again, I think that's exciting to me because it feels like a, a more holistic understanding of music the way I like to conceive of it. It's not just performing. It's not just recording. It's the whole experience from the conception to the final stage of the experience of listening. Like there's no particularly privileged point along that trajectory that it's all important. And to be able to have an understanding of all aspects of that, it just feels like, again, like a kind of meta compositional process. You know, a lot of people talk about vinyl and the physical object and how that's so important. And I think that it is, but I think that what's really behind that is this private experience. When you take a vinyl record and put it on your turntable, you're not checking your email, or you're probably not, or at least that's what people seem to like about it. And you're not 
commenting on the track and you're not doing anything except sitting there and just receiving the experience. And so I think that the physical object is just a shortcut. It's just a, it's a method of imposed discipline on the listener, but I don't think that's necessarily the only way that you can achieve that kind of experience. Anyone that I talk to of my friends that is interested in experimental or otherwise obscure music, they have a predilection to search for music that they like and art that they like. And they're always on the lookout. They're, they're on forums. They're on social media following a hashtag or searching through crates of, of records or, or CDs or whatever. And so I don't necessarily believe that a very passive listener who's not actively looking for new sounds and new approaches and, and new music is really going to be interested in the releases that are on this label. And I, I admit that that might sound elitist or there might be that serendipitous moment where someone just randomly, the algorithm serves them this thing on Spotify and they're like, Oh, this is what I've been waiting for my whole life. You know, <laughs> um, surely that's plausible. But I also just feel like there's tons of other avenues for that to happen these days with social media and all the other ways that you can share the work that don't involve all the compromises that I feel are inherent to the streaming platforms. When I started to think about distribution, I thought that if I'm going to do digital, I want to do the highest resolution digital possible. So the label will offer 96K 24-bit files. I don't know who's interested in that, but I am. I mean, as a listener, I, if there's a high-res version, I'll always buy it as a mastering engineer. There's a lot of reasons why that just to me is appealing. It's not been this top-down thing where the reason I started the label was to put out high-resolution products. It's just more in thinking about this, I'm going to invest all this time and of my own and, and other artists that I want to put out on the label, and then I'm going to release it on this shitty-sounding streaming service where it's compressed to hell, and there's advertisements, and there's no context about why or how the stuff was created. So it just seemed like an obvious choice to me. Um, and I've gotten a lot of positive responses from people that have told me that it's a very clear statement on streaming and it's kind of how they feel. And I've gotten a lot of people who've said, you know, I think you're, it's really counterproductive and you're going to miss whole swaths of audiences. And, you know, you might be on these playlists that will help you reach these larger audiences or make some money. And uh, so I've gotten a gamut of reactions, but I really do feel like it's feels obvious to me that it's the right way to go. I take a kind of holistic approach, which is just sort of like whatever the project needs, that varies so much that it's kind of hard to give one answer because every artist, every band, there's such different internal dynamics and musical identity and, and needs. What one person takes for granted as something that's important sonically or musically might be something that's horrifying to another person. So I think my overall approach is to try to understand the musical goals, try to understand 
the genre as much as I can as a listener, but also try to understand the specific personality of the artist and how to make that into an end product that as a listener, I would have the fewest questions about. I could just put it on and feel that the intention of that artist is being expressed as fully as possible. As a recording engineer, that's kind of the same principle. On a classical date where someone just really wants a very naturalistic presentation of their string quartet or something like that, then really it's about the acoustic space and finding somewhere where the instruments and the musicians are uh, sound their best and are comfortable playing and capturing that as linearly as possible with as little distortion as possible and just presenting a beautiful picture of that that's very naturalistic. Another approach might be a rock or an indie band or something that wants everything or an electronic beat-oriented thing that wants everything mangled beyond recognition through distortion and compression and saturation and that's totally valid too so i don't really have a genre that i tend to work in other than to say i just like working with people that are singular voices that's sort of what i look for and i think the most satisfying projects and also people that have a strong vision about what they want um, and allow me to help them do that which is a tough thing to navigate as an artist to both have a strong vision but also allow other people into it i'm i'm not very good at that myself yet but uh, i really respect artists that i work with that seem to do that and i i learn a lot from them so it's an interesting gig because you you get to see people in the throes of creativity and control and and their vision versus reality and and you get to see people in these very vulnerable states and help guide them through it. And it's almost like psychotherapy for yourself as an artist because you can like reference that catalog of seeing how other people deal with problems. And it's somewhat therapeutic in a strange way. Creative space, I think, is very important. I'll go through binges where I'm very hungry for new music and new art, and I'm really checking out a lot of stuff in a concentrated period of a few weeks. And then I'll go for like six months or something where I just don't want any input. Sometimes there's, I think there's such a thing as over-inspiration, at least for me, and sometimes when I'm overly stimulated by music or art it, it actually inhibits me from making stuff because I'm just kind of like in awe of this other stuff you can become so infatuated with other art that it almost is like a handicap so as much as I enjoy it sometimes I try to like restrict my diet a little bit and just kind of focus on whatever it is that I'm doing more of Joseph's work, please visit josephbrancefort.com, where you can find links to his music, code, and writing. More information about his label, Grayfade, can be found at grayfade.com. And as always, sound and process is an exploration of the artists of lines, so come join the conversation at llllllll.co. That's 8 Thank you so much for listening.